The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we focus on two books, a strident call for colonial histories to be told in museums and a radical appraisal of craft in America. As well as talking to Alice Proctor, the author of The Whole Picture, and Glenn Adamson, who wrote Craft and American History, we hear from the critic Michael Pepiat in this episode's Work of the Week. He discusses a 1960s painting by Frank Auerbach. Before that, you may know that we've launched a book club at the Art Newspaper, with news, excerpts, interviews, live events and more. You can sign up to the monthly book club newsletter, and indeed all of our newsletters at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the newsletter link at the top right of the homepage. Now, a few years ago, the art historian Alice Proctor began giving unofficial guided tours to museums in London, which she called uncomfortable art tours, and which exposed the colonial stories often ignored in the labels next to the works. Alice has gone on to write the whole picture, the colonial story of the art in our museums and why we need to talk about it, which is just out in paperback. It arrives at a particularly febrile moment in the UK because the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, and the Housing and Community Secretary, Robert Jenrick, have warned museums and heritage organisations taking progressive stances on imperialism and slavery not to airbrush Britain's history as they see it. Amy Dawson, the Associate Digital Editor at The Art Newspaper and co-producer of this podcast, spoke to Alice about her book and what she makes of the current debate on contested heritage. Alice, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book. The first thing I wanted to talk to you about is the release of the paperback version of your new book, The Whole Picture, couldn't be better timed in the fact that we're kind of in the middle of what could be described as a culture war in the UK that's kind of focused on how to deal with our colonial history and particularly with regards to monuments. What's the situation as you see it? Because you're obviously very involved in this debate. I am in the middle of all this stuff that's going on at the moment with this so-called culture war. And what's really interesting is that I think a lot of the conversations that we've been having about museums and memorials and colonial history have been actually running for years. You know, there was a debate over the Colston statue for a full decade before it came down. And what we're seeing at the moment is that debate moving into a different kind of public sphere Um, And a different kind of political landscape as well. I think what's happening at the moment is largely about a political climate that's about trying to exert control over colonial history and the way that we tell these stories. And that's something that we haven't really seen before. It's certainly not happened to this kind of extent before. Yeah. I mean, the debate largely is, is around the fact that traditionally the government with national state-funded museums has this kind of arm's-length approach, they call it, where museums have their own kind of power to exert, to say whatever, to do whatever they want. And and this is kind of being contested increasingly with the government stepping in and saying, particularly around monuments, you can't take these down, you must retain and explain rather than remove. And you very vividly live tweeted (laughs) uh, your reactions to a policy exchange talk earlier in March with Oliver Dowden, the UK Culture Secretary, where he kind of referred to like the cancel culture, these classic buzzwords that keep coming up and the nihilist left (laughs) trying to exert their authority about wiping out the grand history of the UK. And you also wrote an article for Tribune magazine, where you described the whole talk as a mess. Do you want to kind of explain what happened in that discussion and your takeaways from that? With the policy exchange conference, I think the thing that was so remarkably messy about that was the number of people involved who are not actually doing this work on the ground. We're seeing a conversation very much shaped by the government around the idea of protecting monuments, protecting museums, that sort of thing. And it's overwhelmingly led by people that don't work in museums, or if they do, they're in there as trustees or directors, and they don't actually interact with visitors on a daily basis. And so it's very 
detached from reality. It's very disconnected from what museums actually do, which is that, you know, these institutions have always been considering and reconsidering the stories that they tell. There's nothing shocking or controversial about this. It's just that the conversations they're having are moving in a direction that the government doesn't agree with. And one of the points that you make in the Tribune article is actually related to the kind of mass cuts of staff that are currently taking place. Recently, the announcement that the Victorian Albert Museum in London is going to be cutting 20% of its staff and doing a complete rejig of the organisation. You make the point that these cuts are actually in some way related to this culture war over history. Can you explain how you see that? Yeah, so as far as I see it, the sort of anxiety that we have in the museum sector is largely to do with this uncertain funding, this feeling that like the rug could be pulled out from under you at any moment. And the people that I know who work in museums, in curatorial teams, or in other parts of the museum industry are afraid and aware that their funding is conditional and their work is seen as optional. And that's something that makes people really nervous. It particularly makes museum directors and trustees nervous because they recognise that if they're not appealing to a public audience, they're going to lose their funding. And it happens that we're seeing these cuts, we're seeing this financial anxiety overlap with a particular sort of populist narrative in museums, this idea that you have to appeal to as many people as possible. And I think fundamentally that that's not what museums have ever been. These are spaces that tell stories that are not always welcoming to everyone and are not always inclusive to everyone. And I would like that to change. I would like these spaces to be more inclusive. But that doesn't mean that museums should become sort of political bellwethers. They should be more kind of confident and able to take a political stance without worrying about their funding being cut. I see this as a very direct link because with institutions like the VNA and other spaces that are going through these restructures, what we're seeing is people competing for the jobs that they already had, but the ones that are going to keep those positions or that are going to be rehired are inevitably going to be the ones whose political views and sort of professional agendas align most closely with the museum directors and managers. Yeah, and a lot of the people who are being cut are actually the visitor staff, the engagement, the education teams. And then, you know, there's a lot of focus on the on the curators that are being cut, but it, the people who interact on a daily basis with visitors are the first to go. And that's also a real problem. Yeah, and if you're not cutting visitor services, it's because you've already outsourced them to the point that they're all volunteers or whatever anyway. And you're not valuing the expertise and the information that they actually bring. You're not valuing the fact that for most museum visitors, they're the only people that they're going to interact with. You know, they're not meeting the curators or the technicians. They're talking to the security staff, the people in the shops, the cafes, the galleries. I mean, the museum industry is so hierarchical, um, but in these cuts, we're seeing the people that are on the most public facing side go first. Uh, it's always the visitor services people, followed very closely by the educators whose jobs are the most vulnerable. And it's striking to me that the backlash against the VNA, I think, is largely driven by the fact that it's curators who are on the line. On the flip side of that, uh, it was brought to our attention earlier this week that the British Museum is actually advertising for two new jobs. Um, and these roles are a curator and a project manager for a project called Reimagining the British Museum. And it's meant to be part of the museum's new master plan for comprehensively redisplaying the galleries and giving more prominence, they say, to geographic areas that are currently um, underrepresented like Africa, the Pacific, the Americas. And I did see that you tweeted that you were going to submit an application that just says, pack her up, boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was a joke, obviously. Um, <laughs> obviously. But but tell me what you, what do you think about I, the British Museum? You know, their plans to, to redesign and, and change completely yeah. start from I mean, scratch. it would be nice if they did start from scratch. I don't think that's what's actually happening here. I've been saying for years that I would like the British Museum to rethink the sort of geographical spread of their collections. Like, 
obviously this is conditional on galleries being open and that sort of thing, but there's more space given to ancient Greece and Rome than to the continents of North America, South America, Africa, Asia, and Oceania combined in the British Museum at the moment. So there's a real strong imbalance there in terms of what's on display. And the fact that the British Museum has a department of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas, you know, these three continents are kind of collided in one single curatorial team compared to the really granular detail that you have in the European collections with highly, highly specialised stuff, I think says a lot about how this institution places value on different cultures and different histories. Uh, It's worth pointing out that the British Museum job application has a pretty quick deadline on it, so they... I would assume probably have internal candidates in mind for that. But it's interesting to see the institution reconsidering these things. I don't know how much power this person will have. (laughs) I don't know how much change these roles will actually be able to bring in. But even the fact that they're hiring for that role is quite remarkable to me. I agree. Um, And before we kind of go a bit more into detail about your book. I wanted to talk about your uncomfortable art tours, which is really where the whole story began. And you began them in 2017, and effectively you were leading unofficial tours of London's museums and galleries, and taking people around, showing them particular works, and kind of telling the untold uh, colonial, racist, problematic stories that weren't listed on the labels or or really talked about at all. Can you tell me what these were like and the kind of feedback that you received for them? Yeah, so I started the tours off the back of studying art history and being a museum worker as a front of house person in different galleries and realising that There was so much in these collections that was connected to histories of imperialism. And it's worth pointing out, I actually started with uh, more art museums rather than culture museums. So I was working with the um, Tate Collection in the National Gallery for the first tours. And I wanted to try and show visitors that even in a museum of painting that wouldn't necessarily be obviously linked to colonial history, there were objects in the collection that we could use to tell those stories and it was something that the institution wasn't engaging with. So the tours were a way of bringing people into those spaces and introducing them to the idea of colonial history as being present in London galleries and being on display and I loved running them. I'm very sad that I've essentially had to stop them because of lockdown but the tours were a specific kind of introduction to that history. The idea was that people who had questions about colonialism or wanted to know more about these collections could come to me and I could be a bit of a gateway to having those conversations. From the beginning, the people interested were very much sort of academics and art students. And eventually the tours started to get more media coverage and popular attention. And so the audience shifted to a more kind of general public interest, um, which was amazing. And yeah, three years of tours was the place that the book started and everything kind of went from there. So let's talk about the book. When I was reading it, I really felt like it was kind of almost like a call to action for visitors to kind of stop taking museums at face value and the objects that they have and to really engage uh, with the difficult questions that might not be obvious at first. And it's a bit like you wanted to train visitors. It's a bit like a manual to kind of give yourself an uncomfortable art tour. Is that how you see it? Yes. uh, So I'm very glad (laughs) that that was your experience reading the book because that was the whole idea. Um, The format of the book came from the tours. It came from the way that I would take people around a gallery and show them a handful of objects and sort of say, here's their history, here's what I think of them. Now go out and read labels more critically. Something that I would do as part of the tours was that we would stop with certain objects and we would just read the gallery label and just dissect that in terms of the language that was used, the sort of passive or active voices, the way that the museum is telling a particular story. And it was always really important for me that I was kind of trying to teach people how to read a museum space and try and understand the decisions that went into 
designing these galleries. And that comes from the fact that the first work I did was as an educator with school children in a historic site. So that's always been my kind of aim is to teach people to experience these spaces. And, and yeah, writing the book was a way of taking that work and turning it into a manual that people could use, not necessarily to walk around the gallery with it like a guidebook, but to understand that these spaces are not here by accident. You know, the slogan that uh, Latanya S. Autry coined is museums are not neutral. And that's become a hashtag and has completely taken off. But it's true. These aren't passive spaces that just exist out of nowhere. They're very much constructed. And as a visitor, you need to understand how and why they were constructed. So let's talk about the structure of the book. It's split into four sections and each separate bit looks at a different type of collection or gallery. Can you talk about how it's organised and what readers can expect? So again, the structure was very much based on my experience doing tours in terms of trying to give a sense of what these museum spaces are like in doing tours and in writing the book, I wanted to make clear to people that the museum itself is part of the experience. The types of galleries that you're in are just as important as the objects. So the first room is called the palace. It's about the way that these museums often began as private collections. And that's very much about the biographies of the people who acquire, in quote marks, these objects and what they do with them and how they use them for their sort of personal power. From there, you go into the classroom, which is more about the Victorian model of trying to make museums into educational spaces. And we see this shift from them being places where you go to show off your favourite things to your friends to being spaces that are designed for sort of social improvement, really. Then the third section is the memorial. And that was by far the hardest section to write because it's all about grief in museums and the idea that these are spaces of mourning and commemoration as well. They're places that you go to witness very painful, often very violent histories. And that's part of the role that these institutions fulfill. And then the final section is the playground. And that is all about contemporary artists responding to these histories of imperialism. So in each of these sections, you talk about actual objects so it's, it's grounded in examples which I think is really helpful because the idea of museums themselves colonialism itself are there such big topics so you really root it in specifics is there one that you could talk about briefly that gives an example of the, the kind of detail that you're giving when you're telling these histories so I was determined to use real objects as a way of making that much more tangible because I know how hard it is to have a conversation about colonialism when you can't pin it down to something. I think for me, one of the most interesting examples is probably the chapter on Tipu's Tiger, which I really love as an object to teach with because it's had all these different iterations. It begins life as a sort of elaborate political joke designed and commissioned by Tipu Sultan as a way of mocking the British and showing his power over them. It's got a specific reference point in the death of a British officer, the claws of a tiger, and it's got this sort of real political context to it. It's then taken by the British after the Battle of Srinagarpatnam, where Tipu Sultan is killed, and it becomes an object of their sort of morbid colonial fascination with India, rather than having this symbol of a tiger overpowering a British soldier being powerful and provocative. They display it in such a way that it becomes a kind of grotesque curiosity. There's a conversation about whether it should be displayed at the Tower of London because it's a wild animal and that's where the London Zoo is at the time. And so there's this really interesting kind of political interpretation of this object. And from there, it ends up in the East India Company Museum where it's out on display. People can crank the handle and make the tiger roar and hear the man screaming and all of the students studying in the library write letters to complain about how distracting it is and people faint in fits of hysteria because tigers are so scary. <laughs> and from there, it becomes kind of more and more absurd. And so the language changes around it and it stops being this kind of frightening, grotesque symbol. And it's described as being like a child's toy. And so we see the changing relationship 
between the East India Company officers and the court of Tipu Sultan through this object. And now it's in the Victoria and Albert Museum. It's one of their highlights. It's on all their donation boxes and you can buy a felt Christmas decoration shaped like Tipu's tiger. (laughs) And so it's gone through this wild life cycle from sort of political satire to a tool that's used to demonstrate the sort of supposed savagery of Tipu's court to being a kind of design object that's fun and cool for children. I wanted to talk about how I really feel like the book has a strong kind of revolutionary spirit to it in that it's kind of, it feels like you're hoping that if visitors read this book and follow this kind of guide to being an engaged viewer and and by demonstrating that you as a viewer are interested in knowing these histories, knowing the difficult problematic questions and answers to them, that will encourage museums to say, you know what, we should tackle this and we should institutionalise this because there's a desire for it. And the last line in the book says, you are a visitor, you have powers, you can make trouble if you want to. Do you see that as kind of like a revolutionary call to museum visitors? I I hope so. I hope that people do recognise that they have power within these spaces, you know, we can make demands, we can ask questions. Something that I always talk about on the tours and always encourage people to do is if you think there's something wrong with what's on display, if you think you've got a problem with it, you should tell someone, you know, probably the closest person who you can talk to is one of those gallery attendants. Um, Chances are they're a volunteer. If they're not a volunteer, they're probably not being paid enough. So you should be kind to them while you do it. But you should give this kind of feedback, you should give this response, you should talk to the institutions about what they're doing and why. And these are spaces that need to recognise that there's an interest in talking about this history. There's also an interest in pretending that it didn't happen. But the remit of museums is to display and represent objects relating to the past you know it's their job to retain and explain and therefore when someone says hey why aren't you telling this story right or why are you telling this story in a way that uses derogatory language museums have a duty to respond to that i hope that people do find it if not revolutionary then at least sort of agitating (laughs) to read the book because i want people to understand that Museums are just one part of this. You know, this is also a conversation that needs to be had in educational spaces, in other sort of political and social spheres. We need to understand what brought us to this point in order to change it and move forward in a more progressive way. But I do want museums to be better. I don't want them to cease to exist. I just want them to do their jobs better. And part of that is about provoking visitors. It's worth mentioning that this paperback version of your book is coming out a year after the hardback version. And in this new paperback version, um, it includes an update because obviously 2020 was a crazy year. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you do say in this update that within a few months of the book coming out, it, it was already out of date. And maybe you can tell us a little bit it's a difficult one but just summarize some of the big changes that have happened since the first edition of the book went out yeah so there's a reference in the book to um unauthorized interventions around the colston statue in bristol and within three months of the book coming out colston was in the river so (laughs) it was very very quickly out of date um i think the kind of fun challenge in writing about museums and about such a live political issue is that things are changing and there will be more research on some of the objects I've written about and I will be out of date and that's okay. Um, We've seen this real shift happening, I would say, in the last five years around museums and monuments in particular into this conversation that always used to be a bit niche and a bit academic and a bit sort of granular and weird has become a huge political touch point. We've seen the involvement of the culture secretary trying to sort of weigh in on what museums should be doing. We've seen him muscle in over the uh, Museum of the Home attempting to remove a statue of Jeffrey. 
Um, we've also seen the housing secretary say that he's going to make planning permission harder so that people can't remove statues, which is a wild example of someone overstepping their remit. And what we have is this very, very live, very hostile discussion. I, I hate the phrase culture war because I think it's so glib and it makes it sound like there are good points on both sides when actually most of what's happening right now, as I see it, is an incredibly conservative reactionary movement against people trying to do important anti-racist, anti-imperialist work in museums that that what we're seeing is not not a battle, but a death gasp. Um, and that's that's a significant thing that we need to try and understand. Like museums have a responsibility to engage with that and to consider it when they decide what stories to tell and how. Thank you so much for talking to me about this really important topical conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Alice Proctor's The Whole Picture is published by Cassell Books and is priced £9.99, $12.99 in the US and $14.99 in Canada. You can find Alice's podcast, Historical Friction, on the usual podcast platforms and her website is theexhibitionist.org. In a moment, we talk to Glenn Adamson about his book on craft in the US, and a bit later, Michael Pepiat explores a Frank Auerbach painting in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. But first, here are some of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. An NFT digital artwork by Beeple called Every Day, The First 5,000 Days has sold for an astonishing $60.25 million, or $69.3 million with fees, at Christie's. Bids for the work, which was discussed in our in-depth look at NFT, or non-fungible token art, on this podcast on the 26th of February, were at $13.25 million on Thursday morning, but in the last 15 minutes of the sale, figures skyrocketed, pushing the work's price up by over $40 million, with several individual bids coming in at mammoth increments of $10 million and $15 million. Metro Pictures, the New York gallery most associated with the pictures generation of the 1980s, has shocked the art world by announcing it will soon close. In an email, the founders Helene Weiner and Janelle Raring announced that they'd close Metro Pictures by the end of 2021. Speaking to Tom Seymour, Raring said that she was expecting a lot of permanent changes in the art world after the pandemic. Raring, formerly of Leo Castelli Gallery, and Weiner, formerly of the non-profit artist space, founded Metro Pictures in Soho in 1980, before moving to their current Chelsea location in 1997. Immediately after the announcement, Hauser and Worth said that it would exclusively represent one of the key artists in Metro Pictures' roster, Cindy Sherman. And finally, the comedian and broadcaster Robin Ince is the latest speaker to pull out of a panel discussion organised by the UK Science Museum in protest at the institution's ongoing sponsorship from the oil companies BP and Equinor. Ince follows in the footsteps of the journalist George Monbiot and the environmentalist Mark Linus in pulling out of the event in the museum's Climate Talks series. Monbiot called the fossil fuel companies a planetary death machine as he withdrew from the talk. Ian Blatchford, the director of the Science Museum Group, said that the talk series had a diverse international and authoritative range of speakers and that 10,000 people have tuned in or booked a free ticket for the events. In 2019, Blatchford told the Financial Times, quote, even if the Science Museum were lavishly publicly funded, I would still want to have sponsorship from the oil companies. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This April, Christie's is honoured to present the collection of Elaine and Alexandre P. Rosenberg, one of the most important collections of illuminated manuscripts and early printed books to come to auction. The manuscripts represent the culmination of 15th and 16th century European manuscript painting and were owned by prominent collectors of their time, from the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to Henry Yates Thompson and William Randolph Hearst. The printed books consist of over 200 volumes of incunabula from the 15th century, many in their original bindings, and a dozen books of hours from the early 16th century. All proceeds from the sale will benefit the rare book departments of designated museums. In advance of the auction in New York, the manuscripts from the Rosenberg collection will be on tour at Christie's Paris from the 18th to the 23rd of March. Find out more on christies.com.
Welcome back. Now, Glenn Adamson is a senior scholar at the Yale Center for British Art and a co-curator of Crafting America, an exhibition at the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas. He's also the author of a new book, Craft and American History. Both the exhibition and the book attempt to take craft beyond its place on the periphery of culture and place it instead at the heart of the process of forging American identity. Jory Finkel is a regular contributor to the art newspaper and the New York Times from Los Angeles, and she spoke to Glenn about craft's role in the history of the United States. So I love that you wrote this book, not just for an academic or scholarly audience, but for all of us, really. It's a very expansive, inclusive look at the history of craft in America with attention to Native American and African American making. In effect, you use craft as a lens or a window onto race relations in America. In one section that was especially eye-opening for me was your history of the Reconstruction Era educational or vocational programs designed to give African Americans these very practical skills like carpentry. What did you discover in the course of your research about these programs and how suspect or racist or helpful were they? That particular chapter of the story which is about vocational education, as we now might call it. They probably would have, would have called it industrial education at the time, in the late 19th century, how that shaped conversations within the African-American community. And the famous opposition here would be between Booker T. Washington, on the one hand, and W.E.B. Du Bois, on the other, because they really come to disagree with one another as to the utility of teaching young African-American boys and some girls as well, these manual trades. Washington's argument is that it's the only practical means of economic uplift, as he would have called it. Du Bois's argument is that it is tantamount to placing young African-Americans in the position of a permanent underclass because it gives them no aspiration towards white-collar work and, in fact, does not offer them the education in mathematics or literature or philosophy that Du Bois himself as a professional sociologist had profited from. So right there, you get a very vivid example of how debates over craft relate to much broader issues about intellectual history and political history. And of course, it's a very difficult question to settle because you can see it from Washington's point of view, working there in the South at Tuskegee Institute and you know, in the middle of this horrendously racist and indeed violent society, you know, we're talking right here, right at the height of Jim Crow and lynching and so on. Washington famously, as a kind of apologist for a more assimilationist approach to race relations, uh, sort of passed over those ugly realities, whereas Du Bois was more inclined to uh, highlight them, as were other African-American intellectuals like Ida B. Wells, for example. But even having said that, you can really see why Washington would have thought that Kraft was a viable forward progress path for the black community. But of course, we can also see Du Bois's point of view. And these debates really continue today. What kind of education should we be giving marginalized communities? And how should manual training be understood as part of that? Yeah, such huge questions. And Du Bois really came down on the side that that this kind of vocational training was a form of white supremacy, right? Yes, I think he might have seen Washington as complicit in an overall pattern of white supremacy. You know, he had a complex relationship with Washington that's not easily summarized, but he certainly thought that intellectual formation was absolutely critical to the equality of the races. And again, looking at himself as a prime example of that. So it's very difficult not to accept that argument on its own terms. And yet one also has to say that other uh, figures, including famously Frederick Douglass, or a little bit earlier, had identified manual skill as an absolutely critical element of not only black economic prosperity, but literal survival. And Douglas himself, again, was a great example of that, you know, having been a ship's caulker on the docks of Baltimore when he was a teenager, you know, that actually provided the conditions for him to effect his escape from slavery. Um, and for any black person in the pre-Civil War period, having uh, an economically viable skill was the best means to protect oneself from being sent into the fields, which of course were literally killing fields. 
So all of this to say, I guess, is that when you look at craft through this kind of lens, it makes you realize that the more commonly circulated narratives around the topic, which are quite warm and fuzzy <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, you know, emphasize pretty objects in museums are not getting at the heart of things at all and that there are much more essential and foundational topics to be considered. Maybe on the warm and fuzzy side, uh, I would like to talk about Elizabeth Keckley, who I think is one of the great heroes of your book. Now, she was born a slave, but she ended up living during the Civil War, no less, living in the White House. Uh, and she was a seamstress who made gowns for Mary Todd Lincoln, correct? Right. What can you tell us about her? Um, and, and is this recent scholarship? Has everybody known about her all along? Yeah. So this is really a story about a woman radically transforming her own life through her own skill and hard work. So she was born into slavery. She suffered horrific trauma as a child, like many enslaved girls especially did. And yet she was also able to acquire the skills of a dressmaker and in fact worked for her, quote, owners, trying to get money for the family where she was living through those skills. And in the process of doing this, managed to cultivate quite an elite clientele for her work, and that way managed to buy her own freedom, basically with her client's assistance. Then she made her way to Washington, D.C., and because she was so incredibly good at what she did, she became, you know, you might say the gown maker to the political elite, and not only made uh, dresses for Mary Todd Lincoln, which, by the way, some of which survive in the Smithsonian, so you can see them, but also, and this is the mind-bending part of it, she also made dresses for the wives of Jefferson Davis, and Robert E. Lee. So you have to imagine that during the Civil War, the female spouses of the protagonists of the conflict are all wearing dresses by the same formerly enslaved African-American woman. It's crazy. Both North and South. Right. Abolitionists and Confederates are all wearing dresses made by a former slave. That's right. And it, obviously that's a highly atypical story, but it maybe shows emblematically just how much was possible through the vehicle of skill. And, you know, again, one doesn't want to overemphasize that because there's a, a narrative in American history. I refer to it as the cult of the self-made man because it was normally anchored on men in the 19th century. Benjamin Franklin was often taken as the exemplar. But, you know, the idea here would be that craft is a means of upward mobility, social mobility. And as we know, that story, which is told to so many people, is not fictitious, but also not nearly as credible and widespread as Americans would probably like to believe that it is. But all the same, that idea of a kind of individual transforming their own prospects through skill and hard work, that's a really, really strong ethos in the craft history of the country and also in the, the craft movements that we've had in the country, and it's hard to shake. I also loved your description of Rosa Parks, because, of course, she was a seamstress, and so you can include her in this book as well. And you quoted something she said that was absolutely wonderful um, about the start of the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, that famous moment when the white bus driver asks her to get out of her seat and go to the back of the bus. And she says, and I quote, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. I mean, it gave me the chills to read that. She talks about her own determination as a quilt, and it's such a beautiful metaphor. And quilting itself becomes a really important metaphor that pops up from time to time in your book. Can you talk about that? Why quilting? Yeah, the image that Rosa Parks uses there of qu the quilt as a kind of weight settling in on her is very, very interesting because it's a powerful image, you know, because there it has a kind of negative cast, but it also suggests the gravity of the tradition the way that she was responding to it and aware of it. It's also, by the way, worth noting that Rosa Parks was actually radicalized politically at a craft school, which I don't think most people know, but just four months before she decided to become the kind of test case for the Montgomery bus boycott, she had gone to a place called the Highlander uh, Folk School that had been founded in the pre-war period as a kind of Appalachian craft revival school. And then in the 50s, it got involved in racial struggle work. And that's where she had her kind of a eureka moment that she needed to commit herself to this. That's another very interesting history. But when it comes to quilting, this is in some ways kind of an overdone subject to the extent that there's even some, I guess they're not urban legends, they're rural legends 
about the topic like quilts were hung on the Underground Railroad to signal escaping enslaved people, which is not true. That's a total fantasy, unfortunately. Nice story. Not true. But what is true is that quilting really does serve as a kind of registration of people's intimate daily lives. The famous case here would be the G's Bend quilts, which were famously celebrated at the Whitney and then all these other museums uh, touring around the country, that that major show and its sequels. But, you know, G's Bend is actually not that unusual. I think most people think that's a, an exceptional case. It's really not. All across the South, you have amazing works being done in this medium that speak to the everyday lives of working class African-Americans. And they, in a lot of ways, they really do tell the stories that mainstream fine art just wasn't telling for decades and centuries. And of course, now we're falling back on these objects with incredible interest and reverence and appropriately so, but it's also equally important that they were, you know, sidelined as objects in museums for so long. The very definition of craft is, of course, uh, a little bit of elusive. You said that craft is always or often defined by what it's not. And you make the point that craft gets, as it gets sidelined economically because of the Industrial Revolution, it acquires a very kind of stratified status. That at the very high end, craft can mean these handmade luxury goods, expensive, valuable. And at the low end, it can mean something like a teenager's hobby, and so there's so much complexity or multiplicity in this category. I'm just thinking, you know, craft is this very slippery fish to hold on to. How did you deal with that as a writer, as a thinker? Yeah, that's a very astute observation. You know, one way you could put it is that until the Industrial Revolution, everything is crafted because there's no other way of doing it. And then once the Industrial Revolution comes to occupy the center of the economy and then growing, 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 uh, taking over more and more of the productive capacity of the country, craft gets marginalized, pushed. But of course, it gets pushed in every direction. So when you say it's marginalized, yes, but it's marginalized into all of these different spaces, each of which are quite different from one another. And so what you're looking at is this kind of periphery of economic and official activity. And that can be everything from the luxury industry to the counterculture of the 60s, to folk art, to fine art practice, which obviously are really different situations, and yet they have this commonality. And the trick is to think about what actually is held in common between these different spaces. So a good example would be the idea of the individual, you know, the value of the individual. So in fine art, that might be understood in terms of expression. In luxury, it might be understood as a sense of refinement or kind of exquisiteness or uniqueness. In folk art, it might be understood as the inheritor or preserver of a specific tradition that is otherwise dying out. So although it's very fragmented, there are certain aspects of craft that seem to be consistent across these different contexts. So what's your one-liner for, you know, the simple definition of craft that you give? Yeah, I've, I've had to really come up with that <laughs> because, you know, what I used to say was craft is pretty much what you think it is. The interesting thing is what do you do with it? But that prove not to be totally satisfying to people because they actually do want a definition besides just ask your mom. So, you know, um, what I say nowadays is skilled making at human scale. So you'll notice a few things that aren't included there are, for example, functionality, because of course, lots of crafted objects aren't functional. And always that was true, you know, think about, you know, if you've ever been to an 18th century palace in Europe, there's non-functional, incredibly crafted things all over the place, including, by the way, the artwork, which is very much handcrafted. So what that definition does do is encourage you to think about the role of skill and the embodiment that that implies, you know, how you learn and inculcate whatever technical challenges there are in your own trade. Uh, it obviously emphasizes making as a verb, so it's a kind of active definition. And then the idea of human scale obviously opposes it to industry. Although I try not to use the term handmade too much, because if you think about it, almost all skills require tools. So there's not much you can make with your just with just your hands besides maybe coiled pottery and baskets. So handmade turns out to be not a super great way of defining it. That's why I say at human scale. In the art world, there is often the use of craft in a pejorative way or dismissive way that it's not as important as painting or some of the established fine art categories. And I've always thought that this prejudice against craft was akin to 
or an example of a prejudice against women. Yeah. But you would say you would extend it and say women and people of color, communities of color. I would, although I, I would also want to give credit to feminists in the 1970s, especially as being the first people to really theorize this in a sophisticated way. And so if you think about the pattern and decoration movement, so this is, you know, Joyce Kozloff, Miriam Shapiro, also some male artists like Robert Kushner and Kim McConnell. Um, really focusing on global craft traditions and decorative traditions as a way of displacing what they saw rightly as a kind of orthodox masculinist abstraction from the center of art discourse. That would be a really good example. You also have some fascinating research and writing that was done by feminists, including in a journal called Heresies that I looked at a little bit for the book. You said there was an entire chapter in Heresies devoted to craft or interviewing makers of different kinds, right? Yeah, there's a special issue of Heresies just about craft traditions. And, you know, it's got, you know, like Hannah Wilkie, the great, you know, performance artist um, and, and ceramist. Hannah Wilkie talking about, you know, her great aunt's craft activities, that kind of thing. It's fascinating. So you just co-curated this big show at Crystal Bridges with Jen Paget there called Crafting America. And uh, this kind of builds on what we're talking about one of the things that stood out to me in the catalog is the number of craftspeople working today who get taken more seriously in the contemporary art circles. And I'm looking at the examples. I'm looking at Nick Cave with his sound suits and Diedrich Brackets, who I love with his weavings, and Jeffrey Gibson with everything he touches. But it occurs to me all three of them are queer men. And that doesn't really show up in your book in any way. Do you think it's a coincidence that all three of these men are gay? You know, I don't think it's a coincidence. And there actually is a really good book that I would recommend called Queer Threads by John Chaich that looks at precisely that question. Josh Fott would be another person from the Crafting America show who fits into that category. He's really addressing queer aesthetics and experience directly in his fiber work. So I guess it's just another example of a, a marginalized identity that laid its hands on craft as a means of self-expression. You know, the the inevitable example here, of course, is the AIDS quilt which Julia Bryan Wilson in her book Frey has a beautiful, beautiful chapter on. I would really recommend that as well. You know, really thinking about the appropriateness of craft and its sort of coziness, as it's often interpreted, as a way of responding to that crisis. So there's a whole range of very um, poignant and uh, provocative narratives to be dealt with there. I think just getting back to the Crystal Bridges show, it's also maybe worth noting that among this list of artists that you're rightly pointing to who are being taken so seriously, there are also women working in ceramics, for example. We have Arlene Sheckett and Nicole Cherubini, or I also think of Ebony Patterson as a very significant artist who's achieved you know, a remarkable amount of art world acclaim in, in short order with an entirely craft-based practice. So there's clearly something very broad-based happening in fine art with regard to acceptance of these materials and techniques and attitudes. That's really interesting. One of the things I've been thinking about um, because of your book is the status of Native American crafts and how visible they are in our history, in our, in our country. And it seems like they come in and out of visibility, that at, at certain times in our history that Native American crafts have been maligned, sidelined, totally invisible. At other times they've been exploited and appropriated by white mainstream culture to a greater degree. And I feel like we're right now living at a time where they're fairly invisible again. Um, and this came home to me because I spent a month in Australia a couple years ago. And I couldn't help thinking the entire time I was there about the power of Aboriginal art and how the Aboriginal art brings to our awareness Aboriginal culture, how it makes the culture more visible, more powerful in some ways, because of the artistic tradition because of the bark painting, um, that that's an entry point for a lot of people into Aboriginal culture. And I don't think we have anything like that. You know, I was just thinking about the invisibility of Native Americans today and that maybe craft could be an instrument, a tool for raising awareness or a growing visibility or something. Is that something you've thought about at all? It certainly has been just that in the past. So in the book, I talk a lot about the way that Native American craft was tokenized and appropriated, particularly during the period of the arts and crafts movement, which was, of course, an important phenomenon within the history. We haven't really touched on it, but 
around, around the turn of the 20th century, you have a great deal of interest in Native American craft at that time, but it's also very stereotyping and in some ways belittling in some, some respects. And so the challenge, of course, is to foreground actual Native subjectivity and perspectives on these questions. So I've, I was very interested to think about people like Nampeo or Maria Martinez, these earlier 20th century potters, and the way that they were themselves appropriating Native American traditions, often based on archaeological ceramic evidence, for example, in their cases, to achieve these kind of modern modes of expression. And I do think that, you know, if you zoom right up to the present day and look at somebody like Jeffrey Gibson, you can see an equally sophisticated management of those tropes and deployment of craft as a means of making visible. You are one of the curators who did the restaging and updating of this 1969 show, Objects USA, which is uh, it's on show right now at r Company Gallery in New York. So I know a little about the original show. I know it was organized by Paul Smith, uh, the director of the Museum of Contemporary Crafts, and Lee Nordness, the New York City gallery owner. You know, I don't know much about it, but I understand it was a huge show, 100 makers, 300 objects. What makes this show so important? Well, uh, the original Objects USA, which opened in 1969 and then toured, you know, 30 museums in America and in Europe. So partly the the influence was just because it was on the road for five or six years, but also its scale, as you say. And the fact that it came along right at the high water mark of the post-war studio craft movement. So this is also, of course, the time that the counterculture was flourishing. So craft had a kind of relevance and vitality that it really hadn't had since the arts and crafts movement 70 years previously. It also had a book, which is the so-called Bible of the craft movement. And so when my colleagues at Arn Company and I set about doing an anniversary project, it was really the book that we were anchoring into. And as ambitious and amazing as the exhibition at the gallery is, in some ways, the book is the more permanent contribution. And what we really wanted to do was take a kind of cross-section through the contemporary disposition of craft in the art and design worlds, just as they had done in the original Objects USA. So what we did was actually to juxtapose 50 artists from the original show and 50 from today um, as a way of kind of highlighting connections and divergences across that half century of time. And it was a very, very interesting exercise, as you can imagine, partly because the original objects, despite being 50 years old, often look really relevant and fresh. Mm. And seeing them all together in these very interesting kind of vignettes is, uh, is a, just a fascinating kind of aesthetic exercise. You know, even walking through asking yourself which of these things are historical and which are contemporary is kind of interesting for people. Yeah. You mentioned the studio craft movement being the great theme of this original show. What are the dates of that movement? Has it ended? Has it properly officially ended? Yeah, that's a little controversial. It's pretty easy to date the start of it, partly because unusually it was pretty much the work of one woman who was called Eileen Osborne Vanderbilt Webb. And if you know anything about New York history, patrician names ring out there, right? So she was a very wealthy and well-connected woman, very close, for example, with the people running the Museum of Modern Art. And the original museum that she founded, then called the Museum of Contemporary Crafts, now it's the Museum of Arts and Design, where I used to be the director, that used to be right next door to MoMA on 53rd Street. It was almost like their craft outpost, actually. In some ways. Uh, she also founded a magazine and a school and world conference and on and on. Incredible woman. Uh, so she was doing all of that right at the close of the Second World War. So that's really when it starts, 1942, 3, 4. Uh, when it ended, if it has yet, is a little more up for debate, partly because a lot of people that were very much brought up into the studio craft movement ethos are still with us and still making so it's a little hard to say that it's over, but certainly you can say that the center of gravity and energy has shifted into these other spheres like fine art, as we've been talking about. Also, another good example of that would be what you might call limited edition design, which is really what our company, the gallery does. That's their sort of home base. And in the show, in Objects USA 2020, we sort of provided a mix of those different ways of working, those different methodologies. So they're kind of all jumbled together purposefully to show the range of different pathways that contemporary makers have. 
Thank you so much, Glenn, for taking the time to join us today. A real pleasure, Jory. Great to be with you. Thanks. Glenn Adamson's Craft and American History is published by Bloomsbury and priced $27 online. It's published in the UK in April and priced £15.29 online. Crafting America is at the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas until the 31st of May. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This week, Michael Pepiat, who's curating a show pairing Frank Auerbach with Tony Bevan at Ben Brown Fine Arts in London, has chosen to talk about EOW Sleeping Four, a work from 1967 by Auerbach, which is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. You can see an image of the work on our website, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Michael, we're talking about a Frank Auerbach painting which is in the uh, Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Why did you choose this particular work? When I thought about which painting to choose, I uh, went back a long time uh, to 1963 when I turned up as a student in a gallery that was run by Helen Lesaw called the Beaux-Arts Gallery in in London in uh, Mayfair in a little sort of cobblestone muse. And Auerbach's paintings were amongst the very first contemporary paintings that I ever saw, and certainly uh, amongst the very first that, uh, that struck me and moved me. So in a sense, uh, I suppose the way one does, uh, I wanted to get back to the original sensation that I'd had when I first saw his paintings. And there was a show on at Helen Lesaw's Beaux-Arts Gallery, a one-man show of Auerbach, and I was fascinated. First of all, I'd never seen paint that thick anywhere. Uh, you know, these are fairly naive impressions, but I think they're the, you know, the authentic ones. And then I was absolutely fascinated because I caught a figure. I mean, I saw, I espied, as it were, a figure within this, these great mounds of uh, rather sumptuous, churned-up paint. And then when I looked again, the figure wasn't there. So I became sort of fascinated with this this fleeting appearance. You had, uh, for a moment, you had uh, a kind of totally, what looked like a totally abstract painting, and then you had a figure, and then you were back to the abstract painting. So it took you right into the paint, as it were. And and, and the, the figure that we're looking at, I mean, it, she's represented through these letters E-O-W, but it's, it's, it's Stella, who's this key figure in Frank Auerbach's early painting, and go, in fact, for, for, for a couple of decades afterwards, right? Yes. So tell us about that relationship, because it's it's, it was a relationship that was both, you know, she was his landlady initially, but it was a romantic relationship, but she, it, was a, it was a key factor that he, he studied her and studied her again, and his feelings for her are absolutely, you know, sort of encapsulated in that paint. I think it's more, I I would say, obviously it's about her, but it's in the long run about him. And, you know, I don't know his personal life uh, and he's a very discreet person. But what struck me about these paintings is that there was a feeling of trying to discover, to almost to unearth a figure through the paint that was there in the paint. But it was like a, a deep, very significant memory that the painter was trying to drag up, as it were, through through the earth of the paint. And that's what struck me. Obviously, these were deep emotions, and, you know, I'm sure he was uh, very fond of his subject, but uh, it was as though he kept losing it and then uh, rediscovering it. And somehow, uh, I think it's rather magical, he communicated this sensation to the painting so that there was a subject, then there wasn't a subject, then there was a subject again. And it made one quite anxious, you know, am I seeing things or, <laughs> or what's going on? And again, there's no, this is something you can, you can speculate about, but knowing a bit his background as, you know, coming from Nazi Germany as a child and having accepted his new life very, uh, very successfully, very happily, as far as I know, uh, at the same time, uh, there must have been this quest within him to try and find roots, as it were, point there. But it's almost like a, um, a biographical, an autobiographical search for, uh, for origins, for beginnings. 
there's a wonderful quote which I found when I was looking into this painting and it's from Auerbach where he talks about an unmanageable heap of sensations and impressions that he's sort of battling through in in the process of painting. I love that. Yes, I think that's that's it. And that's what he uh, manages to convey. You know, they could be inner mounds of pigment, you know, thrown on, but they're working, they're moving almost. And they move the people, in my case anyhow, it moves me to see them because it's as though they're struggling to come up with uh, an answer. And that's important, isn't it? Because it's the eye and feeling together and, and, and you know, absolutely intertwined in the process yes, of making Yes, which is what all good painting is, uh, obviously. Uh, if there's a disconnect, then it's, um, I suppose, a kind of illustration or certainly something that, uh, that doesn't really count. No, I think they are very uh, emotional and very emotive paintings. And that's why uh, one is drawn to them, because he manages to, in this delving, to transmit a very powerful uh, sensation of, I would say, loss and almost tentative discovery and rediscovery. So that the, the subject is always being reabsorbed and you're not able, a bit like a, like a dream where you, you try and sort of work your way back, or life indeed, you know, I mean, uh, God knows one has those experiences too, where you're trying to, to work your way back to the beginning to do it again better, as it were. There's an anguish in, in the paintings. You see it not only in the figures, but in the, in the landscapes and in those marvellous pictures he did of ruined buildings, you know, post-war bombed buildings, where there's just rubble, as it were. But within that rubble, of course, there was at least life. And you feel it's life coming through the rubble. I love that what you said about sort of learning almost how to look at Auerbach, how you see something, what you think is something, and then you stand back and actually you realise perhaps the forms are indicating that the figure might be lying in a different way to the one that you expected. I remember my first encounter with Auerbach was actually on an album cover of Japan's album Oil on Canvas, which which I was fascinated. I'd stare at as I listened to the music. And, you know, it was only later I saw the, the paintings in the flesh. But it was about this extraordinary process of looking through the paint to find an image and then rediscovering that image time and again and he sort of rewards you with further looking doesn't he? When you had an experience like that and I was lucky enough uh, as a very young man to have met several very powerful painters and they form your eye you look at everything else I mean another painter that I have a very strong connection to is Van Gogh and uh, there are similarities for me uh, between Van Gogh and Auerbach. Uh, because he uses, he makes the paint itself such a powerful language. I mean, that's a big distinction amongst artists. You could almost sort of, you know, put them into two two camps. I mean, I would say that Picasso is in the other camp where the ideas, where the concepts are extremely powerful, but the, the paint itself, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a generalisation, but Picasso's pictures are not as reliant on the the texture and the and the weave and the um, the sort of signals of the paint itself, whereas say uh, Van Gogh and Auerbach are, are uh, I would say, almost totally. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great to talk about Van Gogh in the context of this work because it's extraordinary yellow, and it's really crucial, isn't it, that that show that you saw at Beaux Arts was at this turning point in Auerbach's career where colour really started to come to the fore. He got new paints, he'd be, he was able to sort of access sort of higher quality paint and he really unleashed colour in the work, didn't he? Yes, in a particular, uh, let's say, in a particular gam of colours. They're the colours of his sensations, the colours of his feelings. And they're obviously, he chose them. I mean, that's part of his mastery. Uh, is to have chosen the tones that accord most closely to his inner feelings. Let's talk about your show that you've curated at, at uh, Ben Brown. It's a show which brings Auerbach together with Tony Bevan. And these are painters who have some similarities, but their differences are emphasised as much as what links them, right? Yes, of course. The idea, I mean, it, uh, like a lot of good ideas, it came about by chance. I'd done an exhibition about 20 years ago in Paris at the Musée Maillot, which was called From Bacon to Bevan. 
and Auerbach and Bevan were in there. And I noticed that, you know, there was an immediate rapport between uh, Auerbach in the the rooms of the the Musée Mayol, between uh, Auerbach and Bevan, for one thing, because they both focused on heads. So Ben Brown had the clever idea of doing an exhibition of the two of them and managed to get the works. And then it was really a question of the hang, because that was probably the most important thing. Obviously, that influences the dialogue, as it were, between the two painters. And luckily, I mean, I'm here in southwest France and couldn't go over to London, uh, but luckily Tony Bevan did a very sensitive and eloquent hang, you know, conscious of the honour it was to be exhibited with Auerbach. And I think it works very well because there's both a symmetry and a, uh, a discord, as it were. And it brings out a lot of things that you might not have seen if you had just had a single artist show. It throws up a lot of comparisons, a lot of differences. You go from, let's say, Auerbach's unearthings, as though he's, he's pulling an image through this, uh, this great layer of paint, to something more conceptual, more linear, more deliberate in Bevan, where the image looks, although there are plenty of accidents in the final result, it looks as though less has been left to chance to improvisation, in a sense, that he's imposing a vision on the canvas. And so the two of them, I think, tell you a lot about the act of painting. I mean, at least that's what I I hope somebody would take away from this. Uh, And um, I think two of them together gets one even more fascinated by the actual workings of paint and the workings of, uh, of the artist's imagination. I mean, they're both... They're both painting a similar subject, as it were. They are heads, but uh, they're worlds apart. And um, I suppose you could say that uh, heads are uh, a kind of concentration of all life, of everything we know, everything we feel. Michael, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thanks. Frank Auerbach, Tony Bevan, What is a Head, curated by Michael Pepiat, is at Ben Brown Fine Arts in London until the 30th of April. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page, and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, A Brush With, if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tabin Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Amy and Alice, to Jory and Glenn, to Michael, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.